for who you are. We just recognize that now we come before your word and that your word is truth, every single part of it, even books like Ecclesiastes. And we just ask that you would speak through us, through your word, that we would hear you, that we would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So have you ever noticed how the person that talks most to yourself is you? There's a conversation that's going on inside a lot of the time. You know, as, as humans, we are constantly observing things, looking at things, seeing things, interpreting things, putting values on them, whether good or bad, interpreting yourself in the world around us trying to figure out how a really big event affects your life, just the day-to-day small stuff, how it affects your life. And so you're constantly looking at this world and trying to figure out your place in it. And as we do that, we see that this world can be quite a mess. And our lives at times can be quite a mess, a mess that we make, a mess that others make that affect us. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, one of the things that he is doing as he writes is you notice that he over and over again says things like, I have seen this, I observed this, I looked out and this is what I saw. He's trying to make sense of the world that he sees, to make sense of all that is under the sun. And then he'll say things like, I perceived that, or I said in my heart, talking to himself, I looked at all this, and I saw in my heart, and this is kind of the conclusion that I made. Almost as if we are reading a journal of somebody. Maybe you're the type of person that journals. You write down the things that happen in your life, and maybe the conclusion Maybe in the moment the conclusion is, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, this person did this, this person did that, I'm doing this, or whatever. But there's a lot of observation and then interpretation. And we see that that's what is happening here, of how to live in this world with wisdom. And so I just wanted to kind of step back for a moment and, and look at that as a, as a theme. This writer is a human being. We are human beings. And this writer, of course, is an inspired human being as the Spirit speaks through him as he writes to us. So we've been in this book for some time now. Uh, We started chapter 3 last week. And we are the kind of church that loves to go through books of the Bibles. And so that's what we do. We try to do verse by verse, not all of the time, but a lot of the time. Because we think that even the areas that maybe we want to ignore, that there's stuff here that's really good for us and that God wants us to see. And so let's read Ecclesiastes 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter, even though Brad last week went over the famous part of Ecclesiastes, the first part. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill 
and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? God's word. Again, amen. So the first part, which Brad spoke of last week, the poem, time to be born, time to die, back and forth, everything, there's a season. The idea here is, and the big idea for several verses, is that God is sovereign, that God is king, that God is king over the seasons. It isn't so much of, well, now I'm going to go do this and then I'm going to go do this. It's more of God sets the seasons. God is the one in charge. And so he goes through these times and that God as God, who is eternal, is outside of time and that we as men and women are inside of time in this world. And so he goes through all of these seasons that are set by God and the first thing that he says is, what gain has the worker from his toil? All this being born, dying, planting, plucking, killing, war, peace, happiness, all this stuff that happens, all this stuff that I am doing, what am I to gain? What, what profit is there? What's the point of it all? 
And so that's a question that he is wrestling with. One of the things that we begin to notice, um, as you're familiar with uh, the scriptures, is that this whole book harkens back to the book of Genesis, and especially the first three chapters. One person said, The early chapters of Genesis represent the single most important influence on the ideas of Ecclesiastes regarding the nature and destiny of man, the character of human existence, and the fact of God. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to peek back at Genesis because the more and more that I read this, if you sit and read portions of Ecclesiastes over and over again, there are so many themes that come up that tell us about the way that the world is from Genesis. So the first thing that we have in Genesis is obviously there is God first, that he is creator, that he has created everything. And this is the, this is the vision that Ecclesiastes is operating from. It isn't a godless one. It isn't an atheistic one but that this is the vision of life. God is creator. He created every single thing. And he made man in his image. Chapter 127, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So you have this bedrock idea of there is creator and there is creature. And man, us, we are the peak of creation. And we are given dominion. We're kind of like kings. And that we are to go and to subdue the earth, to, to make life flourish under what God has said and done. And then in chapter 2, to nine, we learn other things. We have this beautiful picture of men and women created in the image of God. And then in 2, 5 to 9, we have another picture. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had sprung up, for God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed, this picture being formed, the man of dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So God forming from dust, man. So you have this picture of men and women. Dust, yet formed and breathed out by God a living soul, that they're alive. Consciousness, everything else. 15 to 17. Then God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So God takes men and women that he's created, he puts them in a place. And he says, work it, keep it, rule, reign, make stuff happen. And God gives a command. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we have a warning. You can have everything. You can eat everything except for one thing. Chapter 3, 1 to 6. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say? So 
He starts to question what God has said. What is happening in God's world. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. Then it goes on in verse 14. Sin happens, enters the world. God goes to hunt the man down. Where are you at? He's hiding. And then God judges the serpent. God judges Eve. God judges Adam. Because you have done this, speaking to the serpent, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. In your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the offspring and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground for out of which you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And then God in mercy closed them. And then later, at the end of the chapter, he says, The man has become one like us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So again, the themes, God and his good world, God, creator, God makes man in his image, man falls, men and women fall, turn from God, and all that is there in this beautiful place of flourishing, of garden and freedom all that is there is broken. And God says, made you out of dust, you're going back to dust. Work, which is a good gift, is now going to be painful. Sweaty, childbirth, pain. So this whole theme of toil has all of a sudden entered the world. But now all that human activities do in the world is going to be full of toil. It's going to be a lot of pain. There's going to be a lot of sorrow as you try to build things and do life in this world. And there's also this theme of knowledge, of this desire to press the limits of what God has given us as human beings. That God has set parameters for us to function beautifully and freely in his design, but we want to push a little further. We want to get a little bit more knowledge past what we can go. Push a little higher. And so there's this theme of knowledge and knowing what we're maybe not supposed to know. And we have the theme, of course, of judgment. But yeah, this world is this way because of Adam and Eve, and the world is this way because of God's judgment upon sin in his good creation.
And so that's kind of the picture that we are operating under. You can see a bunch of different themes that Ecclesiastes continues to bring up that happened because of the fall. Life under the sun. And so you're sitting and you're doing life and you go, what in the world is the point of it all? What is the point of all this toil? And that he's seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I'm back in Ecclesiastes now. That's 3 verse 10. So man is busy. Man is preoccupied with all this stuff. All this world in which he lives. You didn't ask to be born here. You were just born. Just happened. God is sovereign. You were born. You're here. You are going to die. Didn't ask for that. And so here we are in this particular world. A world of the fall going, what do we do with all this? And we're busy with stuff. With all different stuff. We are making. We are a doing. We are a working. That's the key word. What gain has the worker? We as humans work. We do stuff. But there's also this whole other picture throughout this. You have humans working, humans toiling, and then you had the picture of God here as the one who sets the times. God is the one who orders the universe. You have God has made everything beautiful in its time. God has put eternity into man's heart. You have what God does endures forever. Nothing can be added, nothing taken away from it. God has done it. So there's this sense of there's men and women working in this world, but then there is this capital W worker in the world. God, the king, the sovereign. And so that's what he is operating out of. We live in relationship with this sovereign, ruling king. And we are preoccupied with all of this stuff, some of which is good and some of which is a lot of toil and hardship. In verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. This is a very popular verse, or it's kind of quoted around, and you might see it in books and different things. This picture of, most people can agree upon this, anybody, that we're, as humans, we have this desire to know a bunch more. We have this desire to reach for God, to reach higher. That there is eternity in our heart. Romans 1 talks about how all of us are, are born knowing that there is a God. There's somebody out there. There's somebody listening. There's a sense of accountability. And so God has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And this assumes that we like to try to find it out. We are curious Curiosity as a human activity has produced all kinds of wonderful things. Breakthroughs in science, human curiosity. We have this inner desire to know more, which is a God-given thing. But there's also this sense in which we want to break through the limits and we want to have it all figured out. And it's stressful when it's not. So one of the things is as creatures in God's image in this broken world is that we can rest knowing God is sovereign, I'm not. I cannot control it. And what do we want to do? We want to control it. And so this reminds us, yeah, we're going to go around trying to control everything to figure it all out. And we just got to go, man, we, 
God's the one who's got the beginning and the end. And he is the sovereign one. We're going to have a lot of questions in this life, even with the answers we are given, which are the answers, and the gospel is the answer. But even with those, there's still going to be questions. We're creatures. And so this desire to control, this desire to be curious, curiosity, great desire, but can produce this, oh, I want to think how God thinks. I want to be the one who just figures it all out. I got to know this stuff. There's a danger there. We want to push beyond the limits of our creatureliness. And God does know from the beginning to the end. In Isaiah, there's this great picture of the nature of God. If I can find it. Isaiah 46, 9, excuse me, 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I will do it. God is the great actor, the great worker. He alone is sovereign. And so these first couple of verses are what he's seen, what he's observing, what he knows. And then he says in verse 12, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So he looks at the way this world is, the way that the world is. He looks at his God. He says, I perceived nothing better. There's nothing better than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. So all the big stuff in life, all the big questions, all the big ideas, the psalmist says, you know what, with all that stuff, you know what's really good? sitting down and eating and drinking with friends. Seizing the day, is what some commentators talk about. There's, there's all these different sections of Scripture, excuse me, sections in Ecclesiastes where there's like this, okay, I've concluded all this. Now, go eat and drink. Take joy in what you're doing. Enjoy it all. Life is horrible. All this stuff's going to happen. You're going to die. So what's the best thing to do? Man, enjoy it while you got it. And that's actually a biblical way of thinking. Our first reaction sometimes can be, oh, I don't know about that. That sounds questionable. That doesn't sound like, like other verses in the Bible. About all this putting to death stuff, you know, and killing sin. And sometimes we can, get, we can get a false perception of them the way that that works, but that we, we have bodies in this world that God has given us desires that are good to know, to do, to act, and to fulfill desires like eating and drinking and pleasure that are good. But when God does not get attached to them, when, they, when those desires are not seen as a gift from God, 
and as if we can set all the limits and we can choose which ones we want to do and not to do. And that's when it all goes haywire. But that this is a verse that we can practice. Nowadays, it's really popular. There's this whole thing about like mindfulness and meditation. If you have a phone, you're going to find tons of apps about it. Living in the present, being present, um, Zen philosophy, Eastern philosophy, all that kind of stuff coming more and more, trying to be integrate into Western thought. And you see it on your phone as you scroll through, as you look at the top apps. And this idea of being present, there is a truth to that. There is a good sense in which we can become so preoccupied with all the big questions and all stuff that we don't actually live in the present. And God is saying that's not good. Live in the present. One, one article in Fortune was saying that in 2015, the meditation and mindfulness industry raked in nearly $1 billion. And this is actually an old article. Like a thousand mindfulness apps. So in the culture, there's this sense of, man, I just want to live in the present. Life goes by so fast. We get so busy. We get so caught up with so much stuff. We just got to live in the present. Again, there's a part of that that is completely not true um, when you take God out of the picture. But there's a part in that which is true. As we look at this, as we see this about God and the way things are, there's nothing better for you to do today than to go home, watch the Super Bowl, eat, drink, and eat, eat, eat chips, dip, whatever. Or you don't like the Super Bowl, go home, take a nap, Drink some water. Go out. Go out for a walk. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, just be human. It's okay. It's okay to be human. We're supposed to be human. God wants us to be human. It's not like, oh, if I just satisfy, oh man, that's kind of starting to feel good. I really like the way that dip tastes, you know, or whatever. And like, oh well, boy, boy, I better watch out. This this constant sense of caution and watchfulness. There, there can be something very unhealthy and unholy about that. There is a holy way that we can satisfy desires that God has given us that are good. Jesus made that clear. The first thing he ever did was turn water into wine at a feast and a wedding to show who he was to the world. So clearly there's a type of fundamentalism that is not correct. That is not fundamentalism. That isn't coming from the Bible. Sometimes the fundamentalist idea can be avoid pleasure. Beware of food and drink. Grin and bear all that you've been given in this life. Just kind of grin and bear it. Get through it. Uh, it's all going to burn anyway. It's all going to be done at the end. Um, oh, we just always got to be looking for, got to be looking for a Christian, looking for Christian work. Just got to be doing all my Christian stuff over here. Got to figure out a Christian way to do life. Got to go become an evangelist or a missionary, which of course are wonderful things to become, but not just living the life that you have as a Christian and doing work in the world as a believer. So avoid pleasure, Ecclesiastes says enjoy pleasure. Beware of food and drink, Ecclesiastes says enjoy food and drink. Grin and bear what you've been given, he's saying enjoy it, it is the gift of God. It comes from grace, it comes from who God is. It's all going to burn anyway. This Christian idea, it will all be renewed and restored. We actually don't get this from, from this particular passage. But there's this desire of, man, there's got to be something more here. But the Christian idea is, hey, all this stuff in this world is going to be renewed and restored because of the resurrection of the body and the new heavens and the new earth, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but trying to kind of show you a contrast here that, 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 that can creep into Christian circles that is not healthy or holy. This 
separation of the sacred and the secular is not a Christian idea. So, um, point is, we can go out and practice what this verse has said. And it's okay to do that. It is the gift of God, and, that's, and, that, and that is the key. God has given you a body in this world to enjoy the place that you have in this world. Inside of the design and the boundaries in which he has set for us, which he gives us in his word. Not to restrict us and constrict us, but to give us freedom. And so it's a gift. If we pursue those things without God, and without seeing it as a gift, then we become addicts. We become idolaters. We become all the bad stuff, so to speak. But when we see it as, this is God's gift. This is for us to enjoy. Not to just glut on it and become addicted to it and self-cope with it. But that, no, this is, this is a gift from God. I can enjoy this in what he's given us. That's, that's the view that we should have. So in light of the sovereignty of God, all the, all the big questions, who God is, hey, go enjoy the present. That's one way to apply that doctrine. Verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Much of this I've already kind of alluded to in the, in the first part. He said, hey, what God does is going to endure forever. What man does, it isn't. You're going to die. Can't add to what God's going to do. He knows the whole thing from the end, from the beginning. You can't take away from it. He's done it, so fear him. And not just like in a sense of cowering fear, but fear. He's the creator. You're the creature. He's the king. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, the kind of cycles go up and down. We're in a time of war as a history. Then there's kind of a time of peace and, of course, pockets of war everywhere. Um, and then there's, we just go back and forth and history repeats itself over and over and over again. And God is still the ruler. And interestingly, this, and God seeks what has been driven away. The last part, again, footnote, talks about what has been pursued, which is the sense of, remember all this, the um, pursuit of life, pursuit of chasing after the wind, all the stuff that we are pursuing and chasing, and we can't figure out, we don't know how it's going to end. It could go well, it might not go well. We don't know the outcome. We're not God. Um, that, that, he's, he's got that figured out. He, he is going to seek what all you've been pursuing. He'll take care of it. Last paragraph. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So new subject. So now it isn't so much the times God's sovereignty, but the sense of God is judge. The king is a ruler and the king is a righteous judge. And we don't just think about judge as he punishes the wicked, which is the part of the justice. Wickedness will be punished. It will be called what it is. It will be punished. But also the sense that he's the judge that is going to restore it all. All this ugliness of history, one day he will make right. That kind of justice. Both and. So in the place of justice, what is that? The legal place. In the courts, there's wickedness. 
in the political world, there are injustices. Places where they should be righteous and just are not. That's grieving. We look at the world and we go, something's wrong. We don't like that. We've got to fix that. So we organize and we try to figure out how to fix it, which is good to try to fix. But ultimately, again, God's the judge who will fix it. So the world's broken. There's going to be injustice. We can't fix it. One day God is judged. He will fix it. We should still work to fix it. But we're not ultimate. He is. He will take care of it. Another place of justice, the church, the people of God. And sadly, throughout history, that is not always the case. And even now, it is not always the case. Recently, it was Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, celebration a few weeks ago. And I always like to read portions of um, the letter from Birmingham Jail. And I was struck by the things that he was writing to the church. So this is a reminder to us as the people of God that we are to pursue, we are to be a place of justice. This is what he wrote. When I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery, Alabama a few years ago, I felt we would be supported by the white church. I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be among our strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents. Refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders, all too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. He goes on, I've heard numerous southern religious leaders admonish their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers declare, follow this decree because integration is morally right and because the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. So I read that to show us that justice, the place of justice is to be the church. And whether it's the way the church handles issues of racism and silence in which they shouldn't, or whether there's been issues of sexual abuse and sexual trauma and silence, you can read news media, you can read reports, this church and that church, of things that occur, the place of justice and righteousness is to be the people of God. And we're not going to do it perfectly, clearly. But we are to work for that. And we are going to see that. We're going to go, dude, there's no, there's no justice in America, or there's no justice in the church, so just forget it. I'm done with this God stuff. No, God is telling us through his word, you're going to see this. You're going to see the wickedness and injustice all over the place in both the place where it should be and it's not going to be. But I'm still God. You should still trust me. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So again, he sees it, he sees the injustice, and then he goes inside. Oh man, I'm saying in my heart, I see this, God's going to judge this. Because we can always rest in that. God is judge. No evil of history will go unpunished. Every wrong will be made right. How is that all going to work? I don't know. 
shows me in Revelation. All the questions aren't answered, but we see in Revelation that there's a different vision and picture that we can live by where justice will be in place forever. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. These last several verses are very interesting. (laughs) For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. There's that word, havel, havel, that we talked about a few weeks ago. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust they all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into earth. And one thing you see when you read the Old Testament is you'll see phrases about this, like in Psalms. You know, rich in all their pomp are like the beast that perishes. Think you're rich and you're great and whatever, you're going to die just like a cow. So, like, that's, that's the sense, right? I mean, like, you kind of look at some of this and just go, we... We are mortal. So he's trying to show there's, there's no, dis- we're going to die just like the roadkill on the side of the road. We're going to die. And so it's a good reminder to not take life super seriously, to, to enjoy life, to work for justice, to do your work well under God in this world, to toil hard for good things. It's not always going to work out. Outcomes aren't going to always be what you want it to be. You're going to die just like a beast. And so he is reminding us of that, of our mortality, this contrast between the God who is eternal and lives forever and the human being who will die. And yes, we'll live forever, but that's, you know, that's a different section. So there's this picture of, of dying, going into the ground. Again, the theme of Genesis, dust to dust, this is where you're going to go. You're going to go back to dust. So what does he conclude from all that, from injustice, from this issue of our own mortality? So I saw that there was nothing better, again that phrase, nothing better. So I titled the sermon, Nothing Better. There is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? You're not going to know the full outcome. Nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. So you're saying all this work is toil, all this work is hard, it's sorrowful, it's exhausting, this is the way the world works, and then he's saying, enjoy it. (laughs) Yeah, that's what he's saying. That's the tension. That's God's gift that he's given you to enjoy those things in their goodness and to continue on even in those hardships. And so we as believers, can live a life that rejoices in your work, for that is his lot. It's an interesting, interesting way to say it. Sometimes when I picture lot, it's just like, oh, that's my lot. It's kind of more of like a negative, oh, that's your lot. That's, that's my lot in life. I guess I'm stuck with that. You know, like kind of that, that sense. But there's another sense of, of lot, and this is from a um, commentator. It can also be translated portion. You can see it that way. This is your portion. Now that feels better to me. It's like lots, kind of that negative, oh, that, oh, that's my portion. That's what kind of like what I've been given. And this is from um, one scholar. The noun, however you say that, Hebrew word, portion, lot, in Ecclesiastes indicates what humans can do with all that they have. 
The portion may refer concretely to a given plot of land, an assigned share, or simply a field. In various Aramaic documents from the Persian period, it's used of a share of property, including land, slaves, and other assets. For the writer, this lot is something that one has only in life. After that, one will never again have a portion. The imagery of an assigned lot conveys both the possibilities and the limitations that one has in life. So it's like Adam and Eve are placed in the garden, their life, their portion. You are placed in your portion right here with your family, with your friends, with your work, whatever. This is, this is the place that God has given you to build and to plant and to live and to do all that you do. There's a sense of limitation. It is your lot. It's your portion. It's not the whole thing. You don't get to see it all. It's not everything. But it's a gift of your portion, your, your area to work and do life in. And this commentator goes on to say, that is all that the human worker can really do in light of God's unpredictable activity. He speaks of the possibility of enjoyment in terms of the portion that humanity has. The portion conveys both the sense of the limitations and the possibilities of life. The lot is limited and it involves work. But it's also possible for one to find enjoyment in that limited portion that is life. So again, creature, human, limits, and great possibilities. So he's telling us to rejoice in that. Say, wow, this is actually what God has given me as a gift. May the tone of my life be like that. One of enjoyment in the fear of God and in what he's given me. So we read sections like that, and, and you can read commentaries, and depending on how some are more, more liberal or some are more conservative or whatever, they kind of go, this guy has no sense of the afterlife. There's no afterlife. It's all over. Well, we know as we have a book of the Bible in a, in a canon that's telling a giant story, that's not it. That there is an afterlife. That, that Jesus came into this world. That there was a promise given in the garden of one who would come and reverse all this stuff. And make it all right. And that he would come to live, to die, to rise again in a body. So that we could experience life with him, with God, forever and ever, eternally in the new heavens and the new earth. And one of the great pictures even about that is, sometimes we can take human achievement and just say, well, humans... All that's not going to matter. Ecclesiastes is saying that's not true. And Revelation says that's not true. There's a picture in Revelations when it pictures the new heavens and the new earth. And it talks about how the kings of the nations bring their stuff into the city. So there is a sense in which God is going to bless the work of our hands that are done in goodness, that are done in joy, that are done for his glory, that the work will last. The work will be brought into the city, whatever that looks like. And God will be there. We will be there with him. Presence, no more sin, no more of that kind of toil. There will still be work. won't be toilsome work. But that there is coming a day when, when, when all that we do and all that we have that glorifies God will somehow continue and not be wasted. And that is good news for us. 
and in your limitation, that's just human, that we make mistakes, there's a God, we are to trust him. And in our sin, we don't just make mistakes, but in our sin, we rebel against what he wants. There was a God who was given himself, who was given his son, to do what we couldn't do, to reverse the curse, to forgive us of all of our sins, to become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And so we take all this limitation, all this stuff, and we go, the only way I can enjoy life is to trust him. Because if I'm not trusting him, my enjoyment's going to be pretty darn shallow. But when I trust him in this life, when I lean into him, when I know that my justification is not going to be on based on what I do, because there's going to be a lot of a mess there, but it's going to be solely on him, then I can go into life building it in this portion that I have for his glory and for your, the world's good. And so as we come to communion today, that's what we remember. God came into this world in the person of Christ to lay down his life, to rise again, and he will restore all things. That's good news. Let's, let's sing and take communion.